Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Um, all right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at the first uh, 13 verses and a little bit into verse 14. Uh, I'm not going to go much into 14 because that's where uh, Josh is going to be covering that next week. Um, but we're in a series in Acts, and, and primarily the reason why we're looking at the book of Acts um, is because it is an opportunity. All right, I'm not going to touch it again. We're good. Um, it's an opportunity for us to be able to see how the early church uh, was planted and established um, and, and ultimately what the, the imprint was that they had on their community. What was God doing with that church um, in order for Christ to be exalted, for the gospel to be shared and spread, and then ultimately for people to be able to, to be transformed from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so we want to see that gospel as it was planted and then as it began to spread, because that's exactly what we're praying for and wanting to see within our own uh, church here and within the greater area of Indianapolis. And so that's the main reason why we're in the book of Acts. And so my prayer constantly throughout this series um, is for us just to see what our part looks like within this. Um, not everything is going to be prescriptive, so we're not saying that everything you see in Acts is going to directly tie to how we do things here. And, and kind of I used the joke of uh, last week, they cast lots in order to replace Judas uh, with Matthias. And so whenever we're looking for small group leaders, it doesn't mean we're going to grab two people and cast lots in order to see which one's going to fall on. Um, there's different ways in which we look at that. So there's descriptive things about the, the text. And then at times there are prescriptive things like be witnesses. That is a prescriptive thing that we are to take and, and do ourselves as well in this series. And so my prayer again is to see our part um, here in Indy, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your home, how has the gospel changed and transformed this first century community, and how does it continue to do the same thing in us today? And so what I want to do is I want to read the first uh, 13 verses, and then we're just going to walk through them, all right? So picking up in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And, and how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. And then a little bit in verse 14, but Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them. And so one thing that, that I want to point out in this text is there's been a lot of buildup to this moment. Um, for for while, while Jesus was walking with his disciples, he's telling them there's going to be a day where I send the helper to you. Um, I send the Holy Spirit to bring remembrance for you. I'm going to send him. He's going to provide power for you. We see this in Luke 24 where he says the Holy Spirit is going to come and clothe you with power. We see this in Acts 1. We talked about a couple weeks ago that you will be my witnesses when the power comes upon you. And you will, do the, you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And this power is literally dunamis. This is where we get the word dynamite from. This is um, the, the, the Holy Spirit falling upon the believers and providing for them the strength to do some really crazy things. Now, if you're Pentecostal background, that's not where we're going. Um, because unfortunately, in our society, in our culture, maybe modern, last 100 years at least, um, I, I feel like, and I've got some... Pentecostal friends, so I'm not knocking them, um, but this, this power, this event, in a lot of ways has been hijacked to focus on signs and wonders and miracles as a sign of being Christian or having the Holy Spirit fall on you um, or being um, sanctified to a certain degree, and that's not the reality here. The reality of what's happening here of the Holy Spirit falling upon the believers is giving them the strength and the power to now be witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. It's literally granting them the fuel that they need and the strength that they need and the understanding that they need to be able to be emboldened with this power to be able to preach and proclaim the gospel, to be able to share it so that, as we see here, they're telling them in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were empowered to be able to speak of what God is doing, who he is, what he's accomplished, not necessarily what giftings we receive or what tongues we receive. Like, it's not about the fact that they were Galileans speaking in other tongues where people could hear in their own language. Because if that were the case, then we would be praying every single week that if there's someone who's Spanish-speaking who comes in here, then all of a sudden now, in order for me to be Holy Spirit-filled, I've got to now be able to speak in Spanish in order for them to be able to hear me every week. And I can tell you, I took four years of Spanish, and I've got three words down maybe. Like, it's just, apart from the Holy Spirit doing his thing like he did here, that's just not going to happen. Like, I know Ransford right now is trying to learn Japanese, um, and it's probably going to take a process, isn't it? Like, it's, you would love for this to happen, maybe, where it just falls on you, and, and you're just speaking it fluently. But um, the reality is, is what the Holy Spirit's doing here is far greater than just the miracle of tongues of fire. Um, and that's what I want to focus on, is specifically what the Holy Spirit's doing within this, this event called Um, when, when they refer to Pentecost, what Pentecost is is a festival. It's an event that's happening. There's three Jewish traditions, Jewish festivals that happen each year. Pentecost falls 50 days after the, the Passover feast. Um, Passover feast is also around the time that Jesus was crucified. 
Um, 50 days later, we have Pentecost. Pentecost is literally called the festival of feast or um, the festival of the harvest or the harvest of the first fruits. And so this was a time in which everybody would come together from all these different regions. And, and I'm not going to go into all of those different regions and countries and cities that were mentioned. Um, all you need to know is if you were to break those down geographically, it starts off with the east and then it begins to move west and then it moves south to Africa and then it moves all the way up north to Rome. So what they're saying there is basically everybody who needs to hear is present. Everybody who needs to hear in order for world evangelism to happen is present here at this harvest feast that, that, that is going on. Um, and so anyways, um, Pentecost, everybody gets together and they celebrate, celebrate this feast of the first fruits. One of the things I think is so important about that is I love the fact that God uses traditions within the history of Israel in order to come in and fulfill something that looks physical with something that's ultimately spiritual. So where they're coming together to celebrate literally just the harvest of the fields. So it's the first fruits, it's the grains that are coming in, it's the fruit that's coming in. It's, it's, if, if we were to look at it in Indiana, it's the corn that is coming in and we're harvesting it in order to distribute it out. They're getting together to celebrate, look at all that has been harvested. And what we see here is the Holy Spirit falls on the church and we see the first fruits of the harvest of the gospel when 3,000 souls get added to the church. Because at this time, the only people who are gathered are literally everybody that's a part of those who are believers in Christ, and it's about 120 people. And we've been talking about them over the last couple of weeks, that they've been sitting up in an upper room, and they've been praying, and they've been encouraging each other, and they've been opening up the scriptures, and they've just been spending time studying and waiting in patience for the Holy Spirit to come and to then begin the planting of the church. And so we see the Holy Spirit fall and then gathers in at the preaching. And I'm not going to go into the preaching because that's next week, um, the sermon that Peter gives. But we see the first harvest happen. Um, another thing that's actually interesting around Pentecost is they also refer to it as um, the initiation of the law. And so when the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, it was about two lunar months, uh, which is about 50 days, was at the time that they reached Mount Sinai where the law was given. The old covenant was, was given to the people. And so now at the Holy Spirit coming, we now also have the installation of the new covenant that's falling on the church. And so it's not to nullify the law, but it's to say the Holy Spirit is coming to initiate this new covenant that Jesus has established. And it falls at the exact same time at Pentecost that it was seasonally when they reached Mount Sinai. So again, I just love being able to see tracing throughout the history of the Israelites Jesus and the Holy Spirit coming into the scene and ultimately fulfilling spiritually where God's been guiding people physically um, throughout their history. So that's Pentecost. Um, and then it moves into verse 2. And suddenly. Now, why the word suddenly? Um, I, I love the word suddenly there because what that allows us to see here is exactly what Josh was sharing with us. Um, it's not in our control as to the time in which the Holy Spirit's going to do what he wants to do. 
Um, there, there is no magical formula or prayer that I can pray that is going to summon the Holy Spirit to do this thing that's going on here. It wasn't that they were in the upper room and they finally met a quota of prayer and then all of a sudden now the Holy Spirit's like, fine, you, you finally got there. Like, thank you so much for saying in Jesus' name, amen, now I can fall and do my thing. Um, no, it's the Holy Spirit, and, and suddenly he came in. It was unexpected from them. They knew it was coming, but they didn't know exactly when it was going to come. And I love that because what that allows me to be able to see in our lives is God shows up oftentimes when we least expect it to happen. And he often shows up times when we need him most, when oftentimes we don't think we need him most. And it also means that he can show up without me having to do anything in order to earn it. Because if it was a formula, all of a sudden now it puts a lot of pressure on me to make sure I'm doing the formula right. It puts a lot of pressure on me to make sure that I'm praying the, the, the amount of length of prayer that I need to pray or that I'm praying the correct words, the Christianese that I need to pray. And I've heard so many people in the past when I was a youth pastor, especially students, uh, telling me, like, I, I don't pray because I don't know how to pray. And my first thing is just start praying. Like, well, we'll work out the different ways in which you can strengthen a prayer life in the way in which you communicate with God. And, and ultimately, all that is, is look how they prayed in Scripture. That helps form how you pray today rather than trying to just figure out. Because I hate it when people always say, like, I, I see the people who pray up front and I can't pray like them, so therefore I can't pray. That's just not true. Like, I love the fact that in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit tells us, you don't know how to pray. And so I step in to pray for you because you don't know what you should pray for. Regardless of spiritual maturity, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us to pray with groanings too deep for words. We don't even have the words to pray what we should be praying often at times and so suddenly the holy spirit comes into this thing and he can act at any time he wants to be able to accomplish the will of god then it goes in also in verse two you hear the idea of a, a sound a great sound and a wind coming through this is ezekiel 37 9 and 13 and also john 3 8 where there are symbolisms of the holy spirit being a wind or a great sound who is moving through and working and so this is again the Holy Spirit falling in a way that has been promised and prophesied before that he works and moves so that they were able to recognize that it's the Spirit moving. Why tongues of fire? Verse 3. Um, tongues of fire is a really interesting one. This one, again, is you got to go back to Old Testament to see why are they uh, communicating in ways. Um, that, like This is not the praying in tongues that is like, uh, Honda, Honda Mitsubishi should have bought a you know Accord. Like this is not the different um, brands of car factories that are out there. Like this is literally languages, human languages that are out there that they did not know how to speak. Holy Spirit falls on them. They now speak those, and people hear the gospel being preached in their own language. So you got Galileans speaking languages that they've never known. Uh, which is why so many people were amazed and perplexed. Like They're like, are these not Galileans? Which is really derogatory towards them. Are these not uneducated men who we know did not take Spanish in college? We know did not study Japanese. And so how can they be speaking in our own language? 
and it's because the Holy Spirit fell on them and provided this for them. Now, what this is doing in the church is a really incredible thing, and I don't want us to miss this point, but what this is doing is this is actually uniting a judgment that God gave on Babel um, back in Genesis 11. So if you're familiar, if you've got a church background, if you're familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel, what the, the people of God were trying to do were coming together. They said, we, we want to get to God. We want to be with him, which is great. That's awesome. Like, I want to get to God. I want to be there. But what they thought they were going to do in order to get to God was let's just build this huge staircase, this huge tower in order for to literally just walk up and get to him. And God's like, that's not the way that I've designed this thing to work and function. I come to you. I mediate for you. It is not for you to build your way to me. I'm building my way to you. And so what God did in order to keep them from going down this road of trying to build this huge tower to reach God up in the heavens, he literally confused every single one of them by creating different languages that he gave to them so that when they began speaking to one another, they could no longer understand each other, which if you're like telling someone, hey, can you go get me a hammer and it's in a different language, you don't understand it, they're not going to go get you a hammer, right? And so they were unable to complete what they started because God confused them in their languages and then scattered them over the earth so that they were no longer unified, but rather scattered and diversified. No longer could they communicate with each other or commune with each other because they could not understand each other anymore. So he literally, by judgment to them, scattered them over the land. And the Holy Spirit falling here at Pentecost is reversing that judgment that God put on the people and now is unifying people who are from the east, from the west, from the south, from the north, people who don't mesh well with one another, people who, who I mean, if really what this is ultimately is the first big initiative, public push of racial reconciliation is what we're seeing here. We're seeing all these people being able to come together, understand each other, and then be unified on one singular vision and mission, and that's to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, and to have the Holy Spirit fill them with power and strength to be able to accomplish this mission. And so this is literally God coming in and reversing that judgment that he had given in Genesis 11 as he's bringing the church together forming a community that now actually has the power and ability to commune with God where God has now actually come down to them. And the way he did was via Jesus. So, filled with the Spirit versus this idea of also being born again. It says that they were filled with the Spirit. Now, a lot of times people have kind of hijacked that as well and said that there's times where until you're filled with the Spirit and are able to speak in tongues or able to do various miracles, you're not fully saved. And I've got problems with that. And the main problems I have with that is what Jesus taught the disciples. In John 15, he looks at his disciples and he says, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Holy Spirit hasn't fallen yet. But they are already clean. They are already clean because Jesus spoke a word to them that provided for them the cleansing that they need, the faith that they need, the trust that they need, the belief that they need in order for, like, again, what I'm, we're always going to push here at the district is no 
part of your salvation is based on your ability, your strength, your understanding, the amount of faith that you bring to the table or lack thereof, the amount of understanding that you bring to the table, God is sovereign in the salvation of his people. He has accomplished every single thing in order for us to be cleaned. The only thing we bring to the table of our salvation is the sins that we bring to the cross and we say we're sorry. We're sorry that we've done these things. We're sorry that we've sinned against you. We confess these things. And God looks down at us and says, my son Jesus, in whom I'm well pleased, has taken all of that for you. He earned the life that you could not live. He died the death that you deserve. And he rose again, guaranteeing for you a new life, a new resurrection in Christ in which we can now commune with God. He's provided all of that for us. And so this idea of them being filled with the Spirit is not salvation, but it is one of those moments where there's a Spirit of Christ already in them. You can't be clean without the Spirit of Christ in you. So they're already clean. They're already in the upper room. They're praying. You can't pray to a God you're not in relationship with. They're believers. They're Christians. And so what is this filling of the Holy Spirit? And as I've been using the language over the last several weeks of us um, our, our lives are going to be majority mundane, day-to-day, walking hand-in-hand with God the Father. Where there's comfort there, there's stability there, there's structure there. There's me looking up at Him and He's looking down at me with this kind face, with this tender face, with this gentle face, with this loving face. Even as I'm holding His hand and I still stumble through times, He still holds me and picks me up because I am grasped in His control and in His sovereignty and in His salvation and He will not let me go. But then there's moments where, just as Luke 24 said, where we will be clothed with, with power from on high. We will be filled with the Spirit. We will be strengthened with the Spirit. Paul prays to the church in Ephesians that you would be strengthened with the Spirit of God. And you're thinking, don't they already have the Spirit of God in them? So then how can you be strengthened with the Spirit of God if it's already in you? How can you be filled with the Spirit if it's already in you? And what it is, is there's going to be moments in our day-to-day mundane walking with the Lord where there's going to be moments where he reaches down and he picks us up and he twirls us around and he brings us in and he kisses us and he throws us up in the air and he's delighting over us. Those are those moments where we just get overwhelmed with the grace of God. We get overwhelmed with the filling of the Spirit. And it's not to say that... that we shouldn't be praying for this at all times. We, we should be praying for this at all times. I would love for that to happen every single day. But the reality is it, it happens on God's terms. It happens on the Holy Spirit's terms. And for the church, for the 120 believers that were gathered, this is a moment where it happened for them. Where it wasn't there the day before. It wasn't there the day before that. It wasn't there when Jesus was being crucified. But it happened 50 days later as they were praying, pleading, Holy Spirit come, the Holy Spirit comes and picks them up and says, I'm going to do something big in you guys today. I'm going to do something huge. You're going to begin prophesying in my name. People are going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear the mighty works of God. They're going to hear all that I'm able to accomplish and do. They're going to hear it, and 3,000 people are going to come into the new family of God, the new community that I have established. 
And so I'm praying that for the district church. I'm praying that for us. I'm praying that for Fall Creek up in Pendleton. We're thankful to have you guys here with us today. We're praying for the Holy Spirit to come in and do these moments where he lifts up his, his body. He, he lifts up his, his children and he pulls us in and he says, watch me do something miraculous that cannot be explained by the community around you, cannot be explained by you, but can only be explained by, look what God did. Like, the disciples are not leaving from this event saying, man, I'm really glad that I got that hooked on phonics last night because it really helped me out with languages. I'm really glad that I, you know, got, what, what's that other one, uh, Stone yeah resist like like they didn't have a subscription to that like this is literally they just showed up on the scene holy spirit comes and crashes the house and they just begin speaking it no one can explain that except for the holy spirit fell on them and lifted them up and allowed them to be able to do this and what that's going to do for us when i'm praying so much for that to do for us is who's going to get the credit at the end of that day because what we tend to do in our day-to-day hand-holding with God is it's a lot easier for us to give ourselves the credit when we plan and when we strategize and when we put together Bible studies and when we, you know, invite someone and they come. And, like, th- there's easy to be able to see ways in which we can measure or track growth when it's in our own strength and ability. And what I'm praying for is that God will show up and do something that absolutely without a doubt we have to give him credit for it because i mean we're the galileans we're like we're the uneducated people who aren't studying how this is all happening but yet he shows up and does it verses 5 through 12 are basically upon being filled with the holy spirit they were all amazed and perplexed why because they're seeing something take place that men and women could not do in their own ability apart from this miraculous work of God. And that leads me into the last part here, verse 13, where there's mocking happening. Now, this is an interesting piece of it because there's obviously this, there's thousands of people who have gathered. There has to be in order for 3,000 of them to get saved, and yet there still be others who are mocking. I mean, mocking to the point where they're looking at these this church, these 120 people who are speaking in these weird tongues, and they're looking at it from this understanding of they're drunk. <laughs> like, they're, like it's, there's no way that they can be doing anything that is godlike. Rather, they just look like they're out of their minds and they're drunk. And so this is this group of people who are mocking, who are literally saying in their own closed-mindedness, in their own... Um, uh, unregeneration they're looking at this incredible miraculous event and they're literally thinking that it's due to alcohol consumption excess (laughs) like like they literally think these people are just flat out out of their mind and the reason why i want to point to that in beginning the closing out of this is i don't think that's our day-to-day experience here I don't think day-to-day we have the community outside looking to us as the church within and saying they're drunk or they're out of their minds. Um, yes, you might see some of that on Fox News or you might see some of that you know, whenever the, the white evangelicals get um, kind of um, smashed in, in um, 
popular media, but um, the reality is I think we do this to ourselves more than the community around us does this to ourselves. I think we mock ourselves or we belittle the fact that the Holy Spirit actually wants to do this within our lives. I don't think we ever, the reason why we don't pray for this is because we think that it's going to lead to us being or looking like fools or that it's going to lead to us um, doing something that's outside of our comfort zone. Like, how dare you, Holy Spirit, lead me into something that might be uh, something that I'm not ready for, that I haven't prepared for, that I'm not uh, wanting to do or engage in. And so we, we more so mock what the Holy Spirit could potentially do within our own lives. And I think one of the things that we need to do when it comes to praying for the Holy Spirit to fall on our church and on our community in such a huge way like this is I think we need to enter into a state of humility where first and foremost we say, like, how, how, how dare me not want to pray for this? How dare me not want to expect the Holy Spirit to come and do something like this? I kind of like the incremental growth. I kind of like, you know, being able to control who's leaders and who's not. I mean, think about it. If 3,000 people join the church and you've got 12 guys trying to lead that thing, like they're going to have to start identifying leaders quick, which means they're also going to have to start giving up some control and empowering leaders very quickly. And that can be terrifying for someone who's on staff. But yet... So, so there's kind of this sense of maybe it's easier to stay small because we can control this and that. And so like, how dare that? Like that's a mocking of what the Holy Spirit can actually accomplish and what he really wants to do. And then also I think the other side of it is, and this isn't necessarily a mocking as much as it is a beating ourselves up that the Holy Spirit won't use us in a moment like this because of the indwelling sin that we still struggle with on a daily basis. And, I, and that's why I wanted to just hit a little bit of verse 14, knowing that Peter's going to be the first guy to stand up and preach a sermon to this great crowd of people that is then going to have 3,000 people come to know Christ. Because there's something really interesting that happened with Peter, and I'm going to share it with kind of a, a, a modern-day illustration if, I'll use myself as an example. If ISIS were to come in and capture me and take me to some dark room and then put me on video and, and put a sword to, to my neck and ask me or demand from me to recant from my belief in Christ, to deny Jesus. And in that moment, for me wanting to save my life because I want to have more opportunities to preach the gospel. I want to have more opportunities to be able to love people. Like, I'm thinking of excuses of, yeah, God will forgive this. But in that moment, publicly, I'm denying Christ. And then they make me do it again, deny Christ. And, and again, I deny Christ. And then again, they're like, no, no, no. We want you to say it like you mean it. Deny him. And I say, I hate Christ. Like, I don't want anything to do with him. I don't know him at all. And then they let me go. And then 50 days later, 50 Days later, I walk in here on a Sunday to preach to you. Are you going to want to listen to me? <laughs> no. 
I don't want to listen to me. Like if, if I see a guy publicly deny Christ three times, regardless of the circumstance that's going on, I'm not hiring him on our staff at the district church within 50 days. Yet that's exactly what Peter did. 50 days earlier, he's denying Christ three times. Saying he doesn't know him at all. Publicly, I do not know him. Everyone gets to hear that. Peter then leaves. You know what Peter does after he denies Christ three times? He goes back to what he knows. He goes back to his original profession. He literally says in John 20 and 21, I'm going to go fishing. That's what I'm going to do. Christ is, I've denied him three times. He's dead. I'm going to go fishing. Christ resurrects. Christ comes and finds Peter and the disciples fishing. He does some cool things there with making them uh, bring in a ton of fish with nets that should have broken and they didn't. He does some miracles there. Jesus brings them up onto the shore. They have a little campfire. They start cooking. Jesus sits down with them and he asks Peter three times, Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Jesus, I love you. Tend my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? At this point, Peter's frustrated. How many times do I have to tell you, I love you? Jesus has given him three opportunities in order to restore him back to the place of ministry. And it's only been a couple of weeks where he's publicly denied him. And he restores him back to the ministry and he tells him, go to Jerusalem, stay there, go to the upper room, spend time with the rest of the believers that are there, with the rest of the disciples, open up the scriptures, lead them, encourage them, pray with them. He restores him back to his place of ministry and influence. And he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's going to empower you. And I want you to stand up and I want you to preach the gospel to them. And you're going to see something happen that is out of your control and out of your ability. What that means for us today is I think we need to give ourselves a little more grace than what we give ourselves. And what I mean by that is if you're walking in a habitual sin that you're walking in every single day, God is not looking at you in judgment and in condemnation he is not looking at you and saying you are now disqualifying yourself. And I'm not saying that pastors can't be disqualified. Absolutely, they can be disqualified by moral failures and moral sins. But what I am saying is that I think sometimes the process of restoration, we have made way too um, strict within our own understandings. But what I am saying is for us on a daily basis, yes, every single one of us walk in sin. I walk in sin every single day. And what we need to do for one another is we need to extend this exact same grace that Jesus extended to Peter. We need to go to one another. If you want to cook a meal, fish, whatever, that's fine. But cook a meal and just ask, man, do you love Jesus? I see you walking in this sin and I see you struggling with this sin. Do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. I want Jesus. I need Jesus. Do you love him? Yes, like, like keep asking each other to the point where they get frustrated with you that you're asking, do you love Jesus? And say, great, you love Jesus? Guess what? He sent the Holy Spirit in you to empower you, to strengthen you, to be able to say no to the sin and to say yes to his mission, to say yes to his ministry. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing 
when he falls on these 120 believers is he is emboldening them to begin the mission of world evangelism. And all that is, is being able to walk day to day in hand with the Father. And whatever I am experiencing in my relationship with the Father, I am going to share it with my neighbor. I'm going to share it with my coworker. I'm going to share it with my teacher friend. I'm going to share it with the, the, steward, uh, the, the waitress that's at the restaurant. I'm going to share it with the people at the coffee shop that I meet. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to be a witness in order for them to come and know Jesus, to come and know this Father who has a grip on my hand that I know he is not going to let go of and who is going to get to know this Holy Spirit who daily is filling me up with his Spirit and then also at times is picking me up and twirling me around, drowning out any doubt that I have. That's one of the things I love about the fact that they're in this house and this loud sound comes in and this wind comes in and this fire starts to happen. What we ultimately see in that picture is the Holy Spirit being able to come in and he's drowning out any doubt that they have of is this thing legit? Is Jesus really who he is? Is this church really going to happen? Like, no, the Holy Spirit comes in so loud that there's no way for us to even consider any type of doubt at that moment. The fire that falls upon them is Jesus, the Holy, the Holy Spirit coming in and enlightening the minds of all this truth that Jesus has been teaching us is now alive within us. And so let's get that out to the people around us. Like he's literally doing what God has said he's going to do. And that's be the author and perfecter of our faith. And that what he, the, the good work that he has begun in us, he is going to complete in us. And the way he completes it is by daily having the Holy Spirit be filled within us. And so guys, let's, let's trust that. Let's believe that. This is what God is doing. No matter the circumstance in your life, this is what he's doing. This gives us rest. This gives us comfort that he has people that he wants to save. And there's people that he's going to use to strengthen in order for that to happen. And in that process, he's also restoring you by allowing you to have the opportunity to confess sin. Do you love me? Jesus, I love you. Here's the areas of my life that are keeping me from loving you and seeing you correctly. Jesus, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. So give them what they need. Give them the word. Give them community. Give them encouragement. Give them the 59 one another's in the New Testament. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Spur one another on to Jesus. Give them Jesus. And that's what we do. Band, go ahead and come on down. Um, the way we want to close out our um, time together today is, is with communion. So we, we're, we're 50 days into um, this, this new church, essentially. And 50 days into this new church, we're going to look back again. We're going to look back at the Passover. We're going to look back at the crucifixion. We're going to look back at Jesus and what he has accomplished and done in order for him to be able to send this Holy Spirit to this people to see the church. I mean, not just plant roots, but deep roots. Deep roots within the hearts of these 3,000 people who get saved. And then from there, we just begin seeing it explode out from there um, as we'll be looking over the next couple of weeks. 
but it all ends with, with Jesus. He lived the perfect life that we could not live, which is great, guys. Like, right? Like, I don't have to live a perfect life because Jesus lived the perfect life for me. So now I'm just beginning to grow in his life. So I get to experience that daily. Jesus, you're perfect. Help me to be that. Help me to become that. Knowing that there's no condemnation for me because Jesus was already perfect for me. And because I wasn't perfect, he died, so he took care of all of my past sins, my present sins, my future stumbles. He took care of all that, so now, clean slate, I get to walk to God every single day and confess. I get to walk to him and say, I'm still struggling with this thing over here. Or I get to walk to him and say, hey, I took some steps within this, and that was awesome. I got to experience some joy in that. People around me got to experience some joy in that. And so, God, thank you that you're maturing me, that you're growing me, that I'm seeing Christ move. I'm seeing the fruit of the Spirit come out. And so thank you for doing that. And then he rose three days later, guaranteeing for us that that he was the first fruit of the glorified body. We get to have hope in the fact that he's also resurrecting us not only just now spiritually, but one day physically, like these broken down bodies that you have that are just getting worse, there will be a day where we get a body that, that will never go bad again. And so thank you, Jesus, that you resurrect to a glorified body and you will one day give us that as well. And so we, we have hope in past, we have hope in present, we have hope in future, and it all revolves around Jesus at the cross, breaking his body, shedding his blood. And so as we... Um, as, as the band, they'll kind of play some background music. Um, you'll be able to get up in your own time and go back. And, and when you take the, the, the cracker and you dip it in the passion fruit tea from Starbucks, because we didn't have any juice today, when you dip it in that, um, we get to remember this is what Jesus has done. He has broke his body and he has shed his blood. And that provides us the opportunity to be able to gather together as the church to lift up Jesus and to say how awesome he is and to experience the grace every day that he provides for us. And then what I want you to do um, is, is get together with three or four people. You can even take it back and, and take the communion together with three or four people, but I want you to get together with three or four people and I just want you to pray. Again, just pray. We've been doing this over the last couple of weeks, primarily because of the rhythm of what they were doing in the upper room, where, where they were just praying for God to show up, for the Holy Spirit to fall, for Jesus to be big. And so that's what we want to pray for, um, for the district church, is not that leaders would be popular, but that Jesus would be popular and that he would be made much of. And so pray for that together. Pray for that for, for the district. Pray for that for our, our neighborhoods in Indianapolis and for the city, for them to be able to see to see Jesus. Like these 3,000 are, are about to see Jesus when we cover it next week. So let's do that in this time. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at